So reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting with verse 1. This, though, is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will, be, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to those, to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rights, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, even if you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Thanks, Jilly. Uh, now, if, you, if you've got that open, please keep it open. If you haven't got it open, uh, you'll see on later on, uh, it would be great if you could find it. If you've got a phone or a Bible, uh, look it up. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to embarrass you later and sort of who has it, who doesn't. Uh, but if you can see it, uh, you'll see why that's important uh, a bit later on. Let me pray as we begin. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it 
is the truth about your son, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who came to save your people. And as we think about this chapter, we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, we've talked a good deal over the last few weeks, if you've been with us, uh, as we've started our series of 1 Corinthians about the dangers uh, and the ungodly ways in which the Corinthian Christians, who are being written to here by Paul, uh, the way in which they've been elevating Christian leaders. Uh, we've we used the phrase sort of elevating the messenger over the message. Uh, so they've been saying things like, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Cephas, aren't I amazing? And it's been causing disunity, as we saw in chapter one, and arguments. Uh, most of all, uh, it's been causing them to live in a worldly way, as we saw uh, in the previous chapter, not in a spirit-led way. Uh, they're judging leaders in the same way they judge the leaders of the world. If they sound wise and persuasive and eloquent, then they're impressed. And more worryingly, uh, the reason that they're elevating certain leaders is that they hope to look impressive themselves, kind of by association. If you associate, I mean, why else would you do it? By associating yourself with the best, you're saying you're the best, you're better than others around you, and it's creating factions and divisions within the church. Today's passage is the last chapter on this kind of topic, uh, particularly, and it gets quite practical uh, in terms of how to um, overcome this prideful and worldly desire. And so Paul lays out for us the way to move forward uh, as you go through. So if you just look at verse 6, the second half of verse 6, uh, this is what he's hoping to achieve. If you do these things, end of verse 6, then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over the other. So if you do these things, if you think in this way, you'll not be puff puffed up you don't have pride following one of us over the other. So let's get going. Uh, two points today. Uh, they're quite similar. The first one is Christian workers do not be sorry. Do not go beyond what is written. Christian workers do not go beyond what is written. So have a look at verse one, chapter four. This then is how you ought to regard us. So Paul's kind of reached this finale. This is then how you ought to think of Christian leaders, Christian workers. As servants of Christ and of and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Think of Christian leaders, Paul says, as servants of Christ, entrusted with the God with God's mysteries revealed. Uh, we spent last week uh, thinking, if you were here, you can catch up online if you weren't, thinking about how Christian workers are servants of God. Uh, have a look back to chapter three, verse five. Uh, Paul says this about himself. Uh, what, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants. Through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Uh, he's not really saying anything different here, then, is he? So Christian workers are assigned by God through the grace of God to share God's wisdom with his people. And even Paul an apostle assigned by who met Jesus uh, to spread the gospel makes it clear that he has just been given something to share. He's not worthy of special elevation or praise. He's simply responsible for passing something on. 
Uh, the next little bit, he says, he even says the secret motives and perhaps the secret lives and sins of the messenger, even those things shouldn't come to bear on the or influence your understanding of the message. So have a look at verse 2. Uh, now it is required of those who have been given a trust, sorry, that have been given a trust, must prove faithful. So that in, something's been entrusted to servant leaders, Christian workers, and they must prove faithful. Faithful. Verse 3, I care, this is Paul speaking, very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden, it's an important word, hidden in the darkness, and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Uh, in other words, Paul's point here isn't that he's perfect, far from it, but that he's, he's not uh, delivering a perfect, sinless ministry. Uh, his point is that we shouldn't judge Christian leaders by what we perceive to perhaps be secret and hidden sins and motives. No, his point is that Christian leaders have one responsibility, and that is to pass on the mysteries of God as entrusted to them. Now, their motivation might be really good before God, and Paul hopes that his motivation is pure before God. He says, my conscience is clear, doesn't he? Uh, but their conscience, their motives might even be bad. Either way, as a listener, don't judge the leader by his secret, hidden motives and sins, but by the message. We're going to think about that a bit more uh, in a minute. Uh, I suspect what's going on uh, in this context is that the, their judgment of leaders is partly uh, what's causing the divisions in Corinth. Oh, I follow Apollos, not Paul. And it's not just a positive thing. Apollos is really eloquent and impressive. It's also a negative thing. Paul is so weak and, and soft, and I think he's probably hiding something. You know, he's probably some dark sin in his life, or he's just not very powerful. So, he's, you know, something wrong with him. Perhaps he doesn't really believe what he says. And Paul's point is you can't judge a Christian leader uh, by their personal secret sins and motives. For a start, you don't know what they are because they're secret and hidden. It is God who will judge their sin and their motives when Christ returns. Now, it's worth saying at this point, uh, of course, if a Christian leader's sin and motives do come to light as being harmful and dangerous or, or wholly ungodly, then absolutely we stop them from teaching and leading and we pray that they will come to repentance. But Paul's point is, don't be assessing leaders and only listening to the message based on what you perceive might be a hidden or a dark secret. Leave that to God. If we didn't listen to, if we only listened to anyone who was perfect, well, we wouldn't listen to anyone at all. And so says Paul, instead of arguing over who's best, who's purest, who's holiest, who's most impressive, who's least weak, don't judge on those things. Assess them by what they say according to the wisdom of God. Are they faithfully passing on the wisdom of God or not? That is the big question to ask of a Christian leader. If they are, then uh, 
their motive is actually almost irrelevant. And their influence over you, interestingly, ought to be completely insignificant because they're using nothing of themselves to convince you or persuade you to follow them. They're simply pointing you to the Lord Jesus. They are passing on the mysteries that have been entrusted to them. Uh, if you like, it's the other side of the coin. I've already alluded to it from chapters one to three. Don't elevate leaders because they're worldly and impressive and, and eloquent. And now equally, don't disregard them because you're making assumptions about rumours or their sinful motives. Instead, and here is the kind of great reassurance as we listen to Christian leaders, uh, whatever we think of them, instead, we see if they are doing the truly and only important thing, which is passing on the mysteries of God now revealed in Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? With an open Bible. Now, you see why I told you to open your Bibles now, didn't I? You don't, uh, we don't ask you to have Bibles open as you listen to sermons and go to Bible studies just for the fun of it, uh, to make us sort of look good or it's just a, a unique sort of way we do things. You need to be checking everything that I say or anyone else says from the front against the Word of God. You need to check that we are passing on the mysteries of God now revealed in his word through Christ. Paul, even the great apostle, ordained by Jesus himself to bring about the writings of much of the New Testament of which we're looking at, even he understood his role was, to be, was not to be one of sort of miraculous and fresh revelations from God, but rather to simply be explaining what God has already given to his people, revealing who Jesus is in his word. And Paul only had the Old Testament, so if you like, he's got an even tougher job on his hands. But he spends all his time, if you look carefully through Paul's writings, demonstrating how what he is teaching is still only from the word of God and explained into the New Testament through Jesus. So if we reflect back over 1 Corinthians so far, uh, think about what I've just said. Paul's teaching us what we should already know from the Old Testament and applying it through Jesus so, so far in 1 Corinthians, he's been very careful to do this. So chapter 1, verse 19, he writes, For it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent, I will frustrate. What's he been teaching about? The wisdom of the world being foolish. 1 Corinthians 1, 31, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 24, from the Old Testament. He's told us, only boast in the Lord. It's not him, it's the word. It's God's mysteries revealed. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. However, as it is written, no eye has seen and no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Isaiah 64, verse 4. You won't understand if you follow the world, was his point. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, 4. And he quotes Isaiah 40, 13. Uh, who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You now understand all that's going on from the Old Testament. And he quotes Isaiah 40. Or 1 Corinthians 3, 19 from last week. He quotes two verses, Job 5, 13 and Psalm 94, verse 11, to make his point about not uh, being deceived by, the world, by worldliness. He says, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. How does he convince us of that? He quotes Job verse, uh, chapter 5, 13. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Or well, Psalm 94, he quotes immediately after, the Lord knows 
that the thoughts of the wise are futile. If even the apostles were careful to explain the scriptures and not pass on their own human wisdom as if they're special and worthy of elevation and praise, <laughs> but therefore only God alone is worthy of elevation and praise. If even the apostles do that, Paul says, well, we should all be doing that as Christian leaders from that time until today. There was even a saying at the time, uh, I like this saying, I feel like we should use it, um, and it's the title of the point and the sermon, I think. Uh, have a look at verse 6, back into chapter 4. Uh, this saying makes uh, makes a point. So now, brothers and sisters, I apply these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, what was their saying, do not go beyond what is written. Isn't that a great? It's simple, isn't it? Do not go beyond what is written. If God has revealed it to us in his word, do not go beyond it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Do not go beyond what is written. Don't judge Christian leaders, Paul said, by their impressiveness or their weakness. Judge them by whether they are faithful to the Bible or not, to the mysteries entrusted to them to pass on. And don't go beyond it, he says. So don't, don't take away from it. Don't add to it. Don't go beyond it. Now, uh, you might understand me going, well, hang on, hang on. I haven't been to Bible college like you have, Sam. Uh, how am I supposed to know if what you are telling me is the right stuff or the bad stuff? How am I meant to know? Well, that's precisely why as a church and why a Christian leader uh, is meant to explain to you and show you, as Paul has done through Corinthians, what the word is saying. We're not meant to just to tell you some answers. Uh, we call it expositional preaching. That's what we do here. It means to sort of comprehensively explain and demonstrate what a passage in the Bible is saying. In other words, my job as a Christian leader in preaching is not to baffle you, as if that were possible. It's not to baffle you with great theological statements and phrases and, and words and impress you. And you, Oh, he's so clever and he's learned lots. We must just listen to everything he says. Uh, or with my own sort of personal insights or magnificent revelations that God's given me directly, so you just have to listen to me and trust me and follow what I say. Now, my job is to walk you through the passage so that you can see for yourself that that is what God is saying in his word. It's why churches that uh, don't teach like that are in danger of worldly wisdom. You end up putting your hope or trust or the only way forward in the leader. And they're in danger of their people's faith becoming weak because they rely on the leader, not on the word of God, the mysteries of the world. And it's a great temptation uh, for Christian workers and leaders to preach what's popular rather than what is God's wisdom, isn't it? It's very easy to preach what people want to hear. Much harder to preach the word of God. Uh, Paul puts it like this when he writes to Timothy, who actually mentions in his chapter, he sends Timothy to Corinth later. But uh, Timothy was like a, a mentor, Paul was like a mentor to Timothy, he raised him up as a, as, as a Christian leader. And he puts this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2 to 3, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. You see that? Don't just impress them or Careful instruction, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, 
They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching is want to hear. Uh, it's why as a church we very rarely do thematic preaching because we don't want to impose our or the culture's agenda upon what we know of God. We believe God's word is sufficient. It's why we endeavour to cover all genres and sections of the Bible. It's why we spent all that time in Ezekiel and with head scratching. Because we trust God's wisdom, not our own. It's why we say, keep your Bibles open. It's why we try at least to take you on a journey through each passage as we teach it each week, rather than just give you some conclusions. <laughs> it's why Christian leaders are mere servants entrusted to pass on wisdom and the truth of God in his word. I've gone on a little bit about that, but so has Paul, four chapters of this, in fact. And this is his grand conclusion. This is how you ought to think of Christian leaders, servants passing on only the wisdom of God. Passing on the, the message of Christ crucified. And the mystery is now revealed and understood in the New Testament. A Christian leader's primary purpose is to be faithful with that message and to pass it on with the help of the Holy Spirit so that the people of God, all of us, may boast in God alone, elevate Jesus alone, and no earthly person, so that all glory goes to God. So Christian workers, do not go beyond what is written. And in case you're getting comfortable thinking, phew, it's all about the, uh, the staff today and the elders and perhaps me when I'm out in Sunday school uh, teaching there, it's also applied uh, to Christians, this, this idea, this saying of not going beyond what is written. Paul wants us all to live by the written word. It's not just for Christian leaders in their teaching. It's the way in which we all as Christians respond and learn and live. For Jesus. So our second point, uh, Christians, I think I changed it on here. Yeah, don't go beyond what is written. So you, you can't forget the saying now, can you? It's for me, it's for you, it's for all of us. Have a look at uh, verse 6. We read it before, but uh, I wonder if you spotted it. He wasn't actually applying it. He was applying it to Christian leaders and to Christians. So now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. This principle of not going beyond the written word is both for the Christian leaders they teach, but also for us all as we learn and, and listen to the word so that we don't become puffed up, become prideful, become sinful. Uh, pride is... Uh, the most sort of invasive natural sin in all the world, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's, it was pride, sorry, that uh, caused Adam and Eve to want to eat the apple in the garden in the first place. We want to be a bit more like God. It's sin and pride that caused the current Christians to elevate leaders and degrade others so that they may be puffed up in following the best. It's pride that makes us think, well, you know, God owes me, doesn't he? Because I've come to church today and I even have my Bible open when Sam should. It's pride when we think, well, my life should be comfortable because God owes me that much. 
should be safe. I believe in God. Why doesn't he sort my life out to just be all rosy and cosy? It's the sin uh, of pride that leads to our desires for boasting in our own lives or in our abilities or in our possessions or in our associations. And Paul broadens this whole idea of pride a bit in the second half of this chapter, still with an eye on uh, this elevation of Christian leaders. So verse 7, for who makes you, this is a harsh line, isn't it? Who makes you different from anyone else? Who do you think you are? Who, Who makes you any different from anybody else? What do you have, thinking spiritually, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? It's all a bit, bit of a reality check for the Corinth uh, Christians and for us. You're nothing special, says Paul. Sorry to tell you that, he says. Why or how are we any better than anyone else when it comes to faith or life for that matter? Who are we or you to judge people's secret motives and desires, as he's already said? Who are you to boast? When the only sort of faith you have is simply because it's been given to you already in grace through Jesus. So disappointed is Paul with this attitude of pride and wanting to look impressive and have this sort of great and comfortable life that he now employs some really biting irony against their attitudes. And then he makes this, so we're about to look at it, verse 8 to 10. So he employs biting irony and then he has this glaring comparison between how how they view themselves, the current Christians, and the reality for the apostles. So have a look at verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You don't need Jesus to come back. You have begun to reign. And that without us, all on your own. Well done. Aren't you impressive? Here's the reality check. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you, because it seems we're missing out over here. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. You're so great. You, You expect great lives from God, following the greatest, being the greatest. Meanwhile, us simple apostles who gave you this message are in this illustration it gives them of a Roman arena coming in at the end and the people that come in at the end of the procession of an arena in the Roman days where you knew what was going to happen to them they're not going to leave they're going to face an embarrassing and brutal death that's the life the apostles are expecting following Jesus he carries on we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honoured, and we are dishonoured. If we're expecting great things from this world, to be impressive, to be comfortable, to be rich, to be wealthy, to be reigning in this life, Because God owes you. It's what he's called us to be. Because you're following the best leader or you go to the best church. Don't be ridiculous, says Paul. The very apostles received none of that. 
They, as we are called to do, follow the way of Jesus the Saviour, who was also publicly humiliated and crucified, made a spectacle of, made to look a fool, mocked, as they put a crown on him, but not to reign, it was a crown of thorns on his head, and he was dishonoured. Paul goes on, verse 11, to this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, we work hard with our own hands, when we are cursed, we bless, when we are persecuted, we endure it, we don't fight back, when we are slandered, we answer kindly, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of this world, this is the, the, the difference between how the Corinthians view themselves and how Paul views the apostles right up to this moment, he says. You can't miss the imagery between the life of Christ and the expected life for the apostles. Jesus was cursed in this life, and yet he kept blessing. He was persecuted, and yet, and yet he endured it, even to death. He was slandered, but he answered kindly. He became the scum of the earth. And Jesus did all of that so that you and I might find faith in him. He died in righteousness so that we could inherit his righteousness, his life with God forever. Great riches, reigning joy, all of that is coming for those who follow Jesus. That is what Christ won on the cross for us, an eternity of greatness living with our King Jesus. But it's not here yet, says Paul. To seek such things in this life is worldly. It's, it's to be proud. You're applying worldly desires, uh, even in your pursuit of Christian leaders, he says to the Corinthians. You're applying worldly desires to your Christian life. When Jesus, who gave you everything, sought and accepted Literally the opposite. Uh, unsurprisingly, Paul perhaps reflects on what he's written and, and sees it's quite strong. Uh, verse 14 wants to clarify his love for the Corinthians. I am not writing this to shame you, he says, but to warn you, my dear children. Even if you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I said to you, Timothy, my son whom I love, not his literal son, his uh, spiritual son, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ. See, so brings it all round. My way of life, the way I've been describing to you, this is the life we live as Christians in Christ, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Such is Paul's love for the Corinthians. He's prepared to warn them of their, uh, their backwards thinking. He isn't worried what they'll think of him. He's already said that, hasn't he? I don't really care what, whether you judge me or not. He's worried about not going beyond what is written. He's worried that they're losing sight of the saviour they follow. And so he pleads with them, my children, 
remember how I taught you and try to show you how Jesus lived. So for us here, I know the world around us, it loves power, doesn't it? It loves wealth and comforts and impressiveness and great leaders and spiritualism and mindless meditation and morals based on personal opinions. They're all very attractive in a worldly sense. But do not forget the way the Lord Jesus lived for you, says Paul. Do not seek what he did not seek. Be grateful for the eternal life, the forgiveness, the love, the grace his spirit has given you. And live in joy as we await his return. We live according to his word, not going beyond, not going under. Not as babies, as he said, still needing milk in the previous chapters, but as cross-carrying followers of the one true king, Jesus, who's given us his written word so that we don't go beyond it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these uh, words of Paul's to the Corinthian church and applied to us through your spirit. We pray that we would not seek what Jesus did not seek. We would not seek worldly wisdom and power and pride, but we would seek the way of the Lord Jesus. That we would sacrifice everything we need to sacrifice to glorify him alone, so that we would not go above or beyond or below what is written. Help us to always have an open Bible when we listen to others teach. Help us to see that your mysteries revealed in your word by your spirit, not to be tempted to follow anything else or anyone else or any other philosophy. Help us to be your true and pure children, saved by grace alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we may boast in him and nothing else. Amen.